This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following program may contain explicit language. It's Thursday, October 1st, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. New York Times headline, President Perpetuates Falsehood, Study Finds. Oh, a study. A rigorous study, eh? But also, besides a double-blind academic study might achieve such an insight, say perhaps merely glancing attention, how else would you find that the president perpetuates falsehood? Maybe by occasionally lapsing into and out of a coma over the last four years. You might glean that information just in your mere moments of lucidity. The study was a contribution to the sum of human knowledge. In fact, actually, okay, more of a confirmation of the sum of human knowledge. It was about, to quote the New York Times, of the flood of misinformation, conspiracy theories, and falsehoods seeding the internet on the coronavirus, one common thread stands out, President Trump. They analyzed 38 million articles about the pandemic. Mentions of Mr. Trump made up nearly 38% of the overall misinformation conversation is to be the name of the signature show running against Brett Bears once Trump founds his own news network. All right, 38 million articles. He was 38% of them. So that's what? 76 million mentions, according to a Rhodes Scholar working in the CDC after he was forced into the job by Michael Caputo before he was institutionalized. Okay, that's not true. But this is true. The Trump mentions comprised 37.9% of the overall infodemic that's, that's what they call it, well ahead of the following category, miracle cures. That was 26.4% of the infodemic. But a substantial proportion, maybe even the majority of the miracle cures topic was also driven by the president's comments. So a substantial overlap can be expected. And also realize, I found out from reading the study, that 16% of the misinformation was within the context of a fact check, right? You can't check a fact or check a statement if it is a fact without relaying the statement. So you do that, but technically you're passing on misinformation. But because Trump wasn't doing any fact checking, it means that if you take out the fact checks, which is a force for good, even more than the 39.9% of the misinformation originating from Trump actually originated from Trump. It reminds me, actually, of the recent report on Russian misinformation about this election. So in 2016, the Russians had to gin up fake stories to push out, you know, the Pope and Hillary Clinton's health and whatnot. But in 2020, all the Russians are doing is just amplifying the things the president of the United States actually says. This study is, in fact, a damning piece of data, as obvious as it may seem. And it also holds the distinction of being the only academic study I've ever read, which has an entire rubric titled Bat Soup, because, my friends, we are in it. On the show today, I spiel about the mute button. Oh, love the mute button. More mute button. But first, David Eagleman teaches neuroscience at Stanford. He's the host of the television series The Brain. 
and is the CEO of Neosensory, a company that builds the next generation of neuroscience hardware. It doesn't take a brain scientist to tell you that your brain is a complex, ever-changing marvel. Uh, but in case it did, here is David Eagleman, author of Live Wired, The Inside Story of the Ever-Changing Brain. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Dr. David Eagleman is a polyglot. He's a neuroscientist. He teaches at Stanford. He hosts The Brain. He's the CEO of a company called Neosensory, which we'll get into. And his new book is called Live Wired, The Inside Story of the Ever- changing brain. I'm excited to talk to him. Hello. Thanks for joining me, David. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Good. So neuroplasticity is the word or maybe the old word for the concept of the brain is always changing. Uh, Livewired is your take on neuroplasticity. What, what are the deficiencies of thinking of the brain as plastic? You know, uh, the term was coined about 100 years ago by William James, and he was impressed with plastic manufacturing, which is to say you, you smush something into a shape and it holds that shape. And he thought, you know, that's what the brain does. You, you learn somebody's name and your brain makes a physical change and it holds on to that. So he called this plasticity. And that has been a good term and that is the term we use in the field. But the reason I wanted to coin a new term, LiveWired, is because what is happening is you have 86 billion brain cells called neurons that you've got 0.2 quadrillion connections. And these are changing every moment of your life. So you're not just pushing a toy into shape and let, you know, having it hold that shape. Instead, what's happening under the hood is a dynamic living electric fabric that's constantly reconfiguring itself uh, every moment of your life. So I, I just felt that the days of being impressed by plastic manufacturing were perhaps over. And um, you know, everything about the brain is so complex that it bankrupts our language and we need new ways of talking about it. And so I wanted to define this new term. It's, it's not like hardware and software, which is everything we do here in Silicon Valley and around the world. It's not like you know, making trim and efficient two layers that interact. Instead, liveware is something that reconfigures itself with every passing interaction. I also think that the entire notion of plastic has changed. And I didn't even know it went back as far as William James until you pointed it out. But in The Graduate, when, when Benjamin asks, what's the future? And he's told plastic, you know, that was, um, that was an optimistic look at things. And now plastic probably has the connotation of, you know, giant swaths of it in the ocean and something that's choking us all. Yet, yet another good reason to coin a new term. Well, speaking of terms and, you know, the book talks about this, how sometimes the language of things uh, creates the reality of things. I just think about the idea of wiring and rewiring. And what if this weren't the dominant metaphor? I mean, the brain isn't really wired. And in a pre-electronic society, they'd have some thoughts about the brain that would have nothing to do with wiring. So my question is, what do you think that the analogy of wiring has done to our understanding of the brain? 
You know, I think there's nothing inherently wrong with the notion of wiring. It's an interesting question because if we were a pre-electronic society, we'd think of it maybe as, as a jungle or something where you've got trees and bushes and vines of every sort and they're all connecting with each other and laying on top of one another and competing for sunlight and so on. Um, and I think that would make a perfectly good analogy as well. The idea with wiring is you know, sort of like a, a circuit diagram. And it's okay to take that on board as long as you understand that it is a wiring diagram that is totally in flux all the time. It's, it, things are unplugging and seeking and moving. And so I think that's okay. The, the other thing though, that's very important. And this is one of the emphases I make in the book is, you know, AI, artificial intelligence has taken off from neuroscience, but in a very sort of just from the first step of neuroscience where AI says, look, maybe you've got all these neurons that are connected to each other. So let's just have these units that are connected and we change the strength of the connections. And that's what AI has done. And it can do some very impressive things, but it is nothing like what actually happens in the brain where you have not only changes of the connection strength, but who's connected to whom all the way to the everything happening inside the cosmos of a single neuron. So you have changes in the receptors and the biochemical cascades all the way down to the genomes and what genes are getting expressed and not expressed. So the, the limitation of a wiring diagram, I think fundamentally is that we forget about all the stuff happening on the inside of the neurons that changes the behavior of the network. Right. And not only, I mean, what, what the, your AI analogy reminded me of is another example that you give, which is these, you know, brilliantly complex Mars rovers. But if it gets its wheels stuck in a patch of sand, it can adapt as opposed to us and brains and the great machines that we are. Yeah, exactly. You know, the analogy that I use in the or the comparison that I make in the book is comparing the Mars rover, which, you know, as you said, it got its wheels stuck and now it's a multi-billion dollar piece of space junk um, to a to a wolf, which gets its leg caught in a trap. And it'll chew its leg off and then figure out how to walk with three legs. And its brain is not pre-programmed to walk with three legs, but it just figures it out. And wouldn't it be great if we could build our machinery predicated on the principles that Mother Nature discovered a long time ago, this live wiring where the Mars rover says, oh, crud, my wheel's stuck. I'm going to chew it off. And then I'm just going to figure out how to operate this body differently. That's what wolves do because they operate in deference to hunger and safety and other sort of big things that they care about. And so they just figure out what their bodies let them do and how to make it happen. And, and, and they, they operate that way. And, and of course we do this too. We can jump on bicycles and skateboards and pogo sticks and whatever, because we're flexible. We say, okay, look, I want to make this happen. So I'm just going to figure out what my outputs are, what my inputs are and do a little bit of babbling and figure out how to make this work. Right. So first of all, I hate to hear the Mars rover using such charged language as crud. Uh, first of all, let's put that there. But second of all... Oh, no, I agree. <laughs> yeah, it was a great piece of machinery, yeah. yet yeah. it now is useless just because of the wheel. You know, when a person loses an arm or a leg in an accident, their brains just readjust to say, oh, okay, here's, here's how I drive this new kind of machinery. And I think this is really the important part to understand about the brain is it is locked in silence and darkness in the vault of your skull. And it doesn't know what your body looks like. It doesn't know anything about the world. It's just trying to figure out how to make things happen. So it puts out motor acts. It sees how that changes sensory feedback. As a result, it's this incredibly flexible system. And by the way, we don't know how to build 
systems like this yet. And this is part of my purpose in writing the book was figuring out what are the principles going on here? Because in a brain, let's say a young brain, you can take out half of the brain. This happens all the time when kids have really bad epilepsy in one hemisphere of their brain. And so the hemisphere is removed and they just have half a brain and they're fine. They're completely cognitively fine because the remaining real estate just wires up all the functions that would have been on the other half. But the point is you can't do this with your laptop or your cell phone. You can't tear out half the circuitry and expect it to still function just fine. So this is why my interest is in figuring out this completely, you know, futuristic, insanely futuristic, miraculous technology that we're all walking around with three pounds of in our skulls. Right. But there is a time, a temporal component in the life of a person where some skills cannot be acquired. Like you write about the girl who was, was she six and essentially um, raised ferally and she just couldn't acquire language after that. Yeah, exactly. So this is something of a gamble that mother nature takes with humans. So with humans, we are the most flexible brains uh, of any species. And we drop into the world half-baked. And as a result, we have these very long infancies. You compare it to, let's say, a zebra. You know, a zebra is running in 45 minutes or so, you know, so is a giraffe or a dolphin is swimming straight away. But, but humans are so slow to develop because we drop into the world with these brains that just absorb everything around them. As a result, we don't have to learn how to be a zebra again every generation. Instead, we're born into the world. We get to absorb everything that's come before us, all the technology, all the great ideas, the great literature, the great science. And so then we springboard off that. And so it has proven very successful. We've take over, taken over every corner of the planet. We've gotten off the planet. We, um, you know, have invented the internet, which is how you and I are talking right now. And so it's been extremely successful, but it is a gamble in the sense that it relies on uh, a certain amount of input, a certain quality of input to wire the brain up correctly. And so every once in a while, we have these tragic natural experiments where a child is born and severely neglected, you know, locked in a room, just given, thrown some food in the closet, and, and they don't get the proper input, the love, the touch, the attention, the language. And uh, yeah, exactly. As you said, what we see is that their brains do not develop correctly. They they don't get the skill of language, for example, and after a certain window of time, let's say five, six years old, that window closes and then they can never learn language. So is it the case that there are some functions that are just so complex, like maybe language, that um, you have to get to it early? But if we were talking about losing legs, that the brain is able to rewire even if you lose a leg in your 30s or 40s or go blind or something that maybe is less, quite complex and a motor skill, but less complex than language. Yeah. It turns out that different parts of the brain have different windows mm. where the critical activity needs to come in. So um, something like vision, for example, and, and language, those get nailed down pretty early. You need to have the right sorts of inputs for that to, to happen early. Um, in contrast, something like operating and feeling your body, that remains very flexible your whole life. And I think this has to do with the essentially the variability of the data coming in. So when it comes to, let's say, vision, there's only a certain number of angles in the world and shapes and colors and that's it. And so your, your primary visual cortex essentially cements itself into place pretty rapidly. In contrast with your body, 
you know, you grow from an infant to an adult, your body's changing a lot. And then you're an adult, you get fatter, you get thinner, you jump on a bicycle, you jump on a hang glider, you know, all kinds of things are changing. And so that tends to stay flexible um, your whole life. But if you, yeah, if you go blind at this age, it's very difficult for the visual cortex to get taken over. But if you go blind at a young age, your visual system will get completely taken over by other senses. Speculate with me. Let's say there is a baby and the parents uh, in a horrible experiment decide, or maybe they just have a very severe aesthetic uh, taste. They decide to raise her in a black and white world. Really, everything they see is black and white and all the, uh, you know, they control her environment. And then she goes outside. I don't know. Pick an age. She's 10. Will she have certain advantages? Will she be able to see color? What would be the co- what would be the result of that? Do you think? Yeah, that's a tough one. This is a philosophical problem that gets discussed sometimes, and there's no there's no good way to to test this. The um, one speculation about this is that before she leaves the black and white room, that you could try to describe, let's say, purple to her all you want, and she might even pretend she understands it, but there's no way for her to understand. But then when she exits. The room she'll she'll see purple is is one speculation, but it's possible that depending on the age at which she leaves the room, she is no longer able to take in or, or make sense of that kind of data. You know, different wavelengths of electromagnetic radiation, and so she just she just simply does not see purple. So, for better or worse, this is an experiment that uh, we can't try. Now, there's another thing that you wrote. You wrote about the role of prediction in in cognition. And you write about how that if we lose the ability, if we're always correctly predicting things, we lose the ability, I guess, to be surprised, then that would have, then that would also not imply that would come with it. We lose um, cognitive ability at that point too. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, essentially what you lose is the ability to, um, to be flexible in, in your thinking. And so, um, what happens when people retire, for example, is their lives tend to shrink. And what happens is as their brain tissue starts degenerating with age or with Alzheimer's, um, they really end up in trouble. They're losing pathways. But there are studies on people who have kept themselves cognitively active until the day they die. Many of them, it turns out, have Alzheimer's disease, but nobody knew it. They had no cognitive deficits. And it's because they were always building new bridges. So even as the tissue is physically degenerating, they were finding new ways to build bridges all the time. And they get what we now call cognitive reserve, um, such that, uh, yeah, such that they were okay. So this is, this is the key thing is to just always make sure that you're, um, you're building new pathways. And, you know, the key is for tw- in, in the year 2020, all of us in a sense have gotten kicked off our path of least resistance. And so, you know, this is a lousy year with lots of stress and anxiety and depression all around us. But the one tiny silver lining that, that we can all see here is that um, it's forced everybody to be more creative. I mean, in the sense of figuring out new challenges and I don't mean creative, like a great artist. I just mean, I just mean figuring out how to solve things that you thought you already had nailed Mm -hmm. Your internal model said, oh, yeah, I, I understand how the world works. I understand exactly how this operates. And for the first time in our lives, suddenly things didn't operate that way. And so that's actually, from just from the brain plasticity point of view, very, very healthy for the brain to have to do that. Oh, yeah, that is, uh, let's hope that that's true. But I was actually thinking more about when you were writing about prediction and the role of prediction and how it both 
helps us a little bit to recognize patterns. But if our if every if all the phenomena, all the input that we experience is things that we predicted, we perhaps begin to deteriorate in our ability to think. Is that right? Yeah. So, uh, yes, there may be a couple of different parts of the book you're referring to there. One of them is that, you know, the, the job of the brain is actually, if it's doing its job 100% perfectly, it's predicting everything away. Right, and so one right. way you can see this just as an ex- yeah, just as an example is, you know, um, if you take a professional player at whatever, let's say soccer and an amateur player, um, and the professional is, you know, dribbling down the, the field and making all kinds of amazing moves and avoiding people and so on. And the amateur is not, you know, he's getting stuck with everything. If you measure their brains, what you find is something surprising, which is that the pro has very little activity going on and the amateur, his brain is on fire with activity. And, and that's sort of counterintuitive. But it's because the pro has put in the, the tens of thousands of hours of practice and therefore is, has burned the skill of soccer down into the circuitry so that it can be fast and efficient. So that's what the pro is, is doing. He's actually made soccer part of the hardware of his brain, whereas the amateur is still scrambling trying to understand all the rules. So that is what we're generally trying to do with everything is predict away what is what is going on. Yeah. So we say muscle memory, but it's actually brain memory. It's memory memory. Yeah, exactly. Exactly yeah. right. It's brain memory. I guess what I was exactly. I guess what I was thinking of this, there's this mode of thinking that uh, the person will tell themselves I'm extra sophisticated, but maybe an outsider will say you're just knee jerk cynical. And so no matter what the new piece of information is, this person will say, oh, yeah, I always expected that. I think about it again with politics a lot. Well, what do you expect? Well, what do you expect? And I think about Trump and all these revelations. And there is this I understand it's a defensive way of thinking, but it's oh yeah, nothing surprises me. What do you expect? I think think that a lot of what you write about in the book leads me to believe that that person, by adopting that mode of never being surprised and at least always telling himself or herself that I could have predicted all of this, is actually limiting the amount of uh, cognition he does, is actually limiting his brain's ability to process. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, look, this is what wisdom is, right? right? Is understanding the complexity of the world and understanding that um, you can't possibly predict much of anything about the world. I mean, just look, as one example, nobody predicted 2020. No one predicted the confluence of all these events of COVID and George Floyd and all like everything that's happened this year and the wildfires in California and so on. No one uh, sees this coming. Why? Because the world's complex. Everything's nonlinear. And so, um, yeah, I, so it would be silly for any person or politician to imagine that they saw everything coming. The name of the book is Live Wired, <laughs> the inside story of the ever-changing brain. Its author is David Eagleman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel, the mute button. Perhaps no innovation is as overlooked as it is useful, even essential. Without the mute button, everyone on that conference call would know that we're taking a meeting in the bathroom. Or that the reason the other party cannot hear the game in the background isn't because we're not watching the game, it's because we've muted the game. Without the mute button, we'd hear everyone else's kids playing Fortnite in the background during Zoom meetings and immediately know they're better than our kids at Fortnite and we'd have to go out and hire Fortnite tutors. All hail the mute button, one of society's under-recognized gifts. Now the mute button has gone presidential. 
Here now, Fox's John Roberts reporting on mute button developments. One of the things that has been kicked around in the last 24 hours is this idea of the moderator having a mute button so that if the candidates refuse to stop interrupting each other or go over their time, they could just push the button and cut off the microphone. A source close to the negotiations told Fox News just a couple of minutes ago about that idea, quote, that was a specific request made at a negotiating meeting yesterday morning by Biden debate negotiator Brady Williamson. The meeting was at 9 a.m. Hours later, the commission issued their statement about changing the structure. The mute button is a Biden ask. No response yet from the Biden campaign to that charge. So that reporting was, if you followed along, that was leaked to Fox to make clear that the president does not want a mute button. Duh. But Biden does. Double duh. The triple duh, and this is really a dir, is that those inside the Trump camp think it's a good message to be getting out to the world that the president is against being muted. And the duh to the power of duh is that I saw this clip on the Twitter feed of the Trump re-election campaign. They want to silence us. Yes, it is a mainstay of the oppressed in general and Donald Trump in particular. Donald Trump, the most heard from human being in the world over the last four years. It is bizarre, though typical, that they are making a huge deal about this. A huge brain cacophonous deal of Trump being silenced. And it just shows me once more that the Trump campaign shows no nimbleness or no recognition of the problem. I'm not talking about how they're often a problem for everyone else. They're not acting in their own self-interest. It's not that his cadre of MAGA zombies are ill-served by the Trump campaign going on about don't mute us, but the MAGA zombies, that lot, they're locked in. It's that the Trump base has got... Trump down nine points, nine and a half points in the four most recent national polls. And the way he thinks of changing this dynamic is doing what he did to get there only more so. The fact that today's talking point is the president has been muzzled as opposed to we agree the president needs to shush every once in a while. It tells you something about their theory of the case and how that theory is meeting reality. Let me channel a thing Mike Murphy said on the Hacks on Tap podcast. He said, voters might want a champion as president. They might want someone who sticks up for them. They might want someone who fights for them or who speaks for them. But you know what no one wants? An asshole. Well, 40-something percent of Americans apparently want an asshole. But not enough Americans want an asshole to have that asshole reelected. He has locked up the asshole vote and even the asshole adjacent vote. In fact, let let me clarify that remark. I know plenty of assholes who aren't even voting for him. Though they're Democrats, a different breed of asshole. But seriously, this entire incident waving the bloody shirt about how poorly you were treated during the debate and the fact that that is the reflexive White House reaction, it's all exactly why he's losing. An election and a presidency itself is a lot of things as an institution. To some extent, it's an experiment on theories of how to govern and how to run a presidency in order to get reelected. But you do need the election to come along to tell you how the theory worked out. It is possible, and now I'm beginning to think it's probable, quite probable, that the Trump administration was pursuing a failing theory all along. Base, 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 base. And just never caring at all if you absolutely repulse everybody else. Now, it never seems smart to me, and it turns out it wasn't smart. 
it is, in fact, incredibly dumb. And for all the anguish that those witnessing this theory have been made to suffer along the way, and by those who have been made to suffer, I mean literally everyone not in the base, maybe a better reaction would have been, huh, this seems not to be working. And guess what? It wasn't. Now, it's a little different from a strategy that doesn't work in another part of life because elections come by so infrequently. So if we're talking about a strategy for winning a baseball game or a war or for landing that you know job or that contract, with those things, you get feedback more immediately and you could change. With the presidency, also a bad theory has real world effects along the way. So this is also why by looking at the theory from a step away, it's not only that we are aggrieved by how he pursued the theory, some of the consequences of the theory just caused, from an empirical standpoint, horrible things to happen, right? So part of his theory is, let's do this travel ban, let's say. And that seemed terrible because he was pursuing a travel ban, and perhaps we all said it's such a dumb idea, but it did happen. And now a lot of Iranians can't come to the United States who should be coming to the United States. Or, you know, the EPA, he pursued his theory of bad governance, the EPA got essentially neutered, or taxes went into effect that didn't help the overall public, and that also wound up not helping their electoral strategy. But Along the way, it did reward many of the proponents of the strategy. So again, I I raise this to point out why an analogy to another walk of life maybe isn't perfect. Like, what would the war analogy be to Trump passing tax cuts that seemed good in the short term for a few people? Maybe with war, it's like an army going out and having a great time right on the eve of battle. It feels good in the moment, but it comes with a hangover and consequences. I have, I think, a very good sports analogy about how Trump has pursued his electoral strategy while in the White House. And it's not about only taking half-court shots in basketball or letting your craziest player take all the shots in a basketball game. Because, like I said, it becomes clear pretty quickly that that strategy doesn't work, despite the objections of J.R. Smith. The analogy I'm thinking of is, what if a baseball team tried to play offense like a normal team, So this is the equivalent of, you know, some of the stuff Trump does is what every Republican would do, appoint conservative judges, try to lower taxes, lessen regulation. But on defense, the strategy of our baseball team, which is a stand-in for the Trump White House, is we're going to throw every other pitch directly at the opposing batter's head. Now, it might seem like this could work in the short term. Maybe the opposing team thinks that this is impossible. This can't be what's happening. And they start swinging at every other pitch, you know, the ones that aren't at their head, and they start grounding out. So, I don't know, it seems to work. And also, maybe a bunch of players on the opposing team are beamed and concussed and hurt. And our team, our crazy team, the stand-in for Trumps, call them the Arizona Diamond and Silkbacks, or the Philadelphia Phil Eyes, or the Washington National Disgraces, or the Los Angeles Tax Dodgers, whatever you want to call them, they celebrate the opponent's concussion. Woohoo! We own them! It's working! But eventually, the strategy will prove unworkable. A loser. But in baseball, it wouldn't take the seventh inning. It wouldn't take where we are now, which is like with an out or two in the ninth. We would recognize it pretty early. And that is the problem with politics. There are all these inputs, thousands and thousands of pieces of data along the way, but very few renderings of judgment. I mean, there are polls, but polls are fluid and inexact. There are the midterms, which is a fine proxy, but not the presidential election itself. There is really just the next election. And in that case... 
We'll know, you know, maybe in a month and two days, plus, let's hope not too many days after that, but we'll know, we'll quite possibly know very soon that this crazy, doomed-to-fail method of appealing to an electorate was just that, could never work. And I don't know what we'll think of all the anxiety, stress, and anguish that we experienced during the last four years. Pain tends to recede in memory. In fact, there is a word for pain from the past, and that is nostalgia. I hope we don't apply that to the Trump tenure, but I hope we do talk about it quite soon in the past tense. So one, one last baseball analogy to describe a feeling that people are expressing to me, friends, this is probably going on on your life or in your brain, that you just can't believe that the lead that we're seeing is true. You just can't believe that things look as good for Joe Biden as they seem to look. You just can't believe that Trump, who really, by every objective measure, seems to be failing, really is failing. You, do, you can't believe that you think he ultimately will fail because you remember and were burned by the lesson of 2016. But you know what this is like? This is exactly like a Red Sox fan in 2004. So in 2004, after that almost centuries-long drought, they were up 3 nothing against the Cardinals in the World Series. But I got to tell you, no Red Sox fan was like, "Eh, I'm not worried, we got this one in the bag. But that uneasy feeling is just a feeling. Losing at that point was really unlikely for the Red Sox. In fact, it was more unlikely for the Red Sox than it is for Joe Biden now. And also, if you had a crystal ball in 2004, I could have told a Red Sox fan, not only are you going to win now, you're going to win in three years and in six years after that. And again, another World Series five years after that. It's going to be fine. But of course, all they could think about was Bucky Dent and Mookie Wilson and Comey and the servers. Wait a minute, I'm mixing up my analogy. But you see the point. You understand the difference. This is a terrible, uneasy feeling you're probably experiencing, but it's probably just a feeling. Probably especially so long as Trump continues to misunderstand the nation's uneasy feeling. Things will be better if we can rely on his ignorant obstinacy for just a little while longer. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly really, truly produced the gist. Daniel Schrader, you know, he imbued it with his spirit. Jamila Bay notes Cubs fans also felt nervous in 2016, but they should have. They let the Indians right back in it. So I guess right now Democrats are hoping that Mike Pence has as little in common with Raji Davis as we were always led to believe. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. As such, she is inventing a podcast app that works not via the ears, but skin vibrations. But she's also gaming the system so that if if it's the Joe Rogan podcast you're listening to, it prompts a skin rash. The gist, predicting if that Joe Rogan skin rash podcast becomes a thing, all of the Joe Rogan fans will begin to identify as Rash Nation, and Rogan will endorse a line of CBD oil as an emollient. Umpuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.